0: Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 13 of Words with Writers podcast.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association, Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Chris Gorman and
0: Brandy Tanner. Thank you so much, our beloved listeners, for joining us for our 13th episode, the first episode of our second year of bringing you this podcast. To celebrate the start of another year of Words with Writers podcast, this month is going to sound and look a little different from our previous shows. In fact, the month of May brings you not one Words with Writers show, but two.
1: That's right, Brandy. So buckle up, folks, because this is the first half of our Double Feature Canadian Authors Extravaganza. This is part one, released on Saturday, May 22nd. Part two is going to be released on May 29th. Brandy, can you tell our awesome audience what we have coming for them in our special Double Feature episode?
0: Oh, I'd love to, Chris. We are still starting with an overview of our Canadian Authors Toronto events. So we will talk about the Flash Fiction Workshop we held in April and the amazing events coming up in May and June. And then we'll get right into the heart of the show. So over the next two episodes, we will be featuring eight Canadian Authors Toronto members. Eight, that's right. Each sharing an excerpt from their work and a little about themselves and who they are as writers. Our four special guests today are R.A. Morris, Mark leslie Fafavre, Andrea Scott, and Rosanna nisolata Battigelli. And I've heard a rumor that throughout the episodes, some of our previously featured authors will be making short cameo appearances. So keep an ear out for those little Easter eggs.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, we've been excited about this double feature episode for quite some time now. So let's end the waiting and get started. On April 22nd, CAA Toronto Executive Committee Member June Rogers hosted a flash fiction workshop where she gave some history and explanation of the flash fiction genre and then encouraged participants to write their own 100 word piece. After giving the group four different prompts, a timer was set and everyone took 30 minutes to write a flash fiction piece using their chosen prompt.
0: That's right, Chris. We took 10 minutes to write, as June explained it, a stream of consciousness based on one of the prompts as fast as we could, and then 20 minutes to polish it into a 100-word story. Then anyone who wanted to share their piece did, and our members really stepped up to the plate and delivered some astounding writing. Before this workshop, I found flash fiction somewhat intimidating, but now I often find myself coming up with short pieces in my head, using just about anything and everything around me. So it was a fun and, and very useful exercise in choosing your words and structure carefully.
1: That's awesome. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, contests and stuff out right now with, for flash fiction, so it's very timely.
0: Yes, yeah, uh, flash fiction really seems to be exploding right now as a genre, uh, as June explained in the workshop too. So yeah, it's a, it's a great time to start getting into it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so if you missed the workshop, but you'd like to get the slides or a video to try it out yourself, just email brandy at to membership at Canadianauthors.org and she'll get them to you. Our next virtual event is coming up on May 27th from seven thirty to 9 PM via zoom and is free and open to anyone who wants to join us. Canadian Authors Toronto has partnered with Dark Helix Press, an indie press based in Toronto, to celebrate the book launch of a new Asian Canadian anthology, Belief. This anthology is a compilation of rice paper magazine submissions, short stories, poetry and non-fiction by writers of Asian descent from across the world. The theme that binds the collection is belief, a notion personal to each individual sharing a piece of themselves in their works. Each author shares a conviction of truth, shaping the reality of life in the Asian diaspora. For this event, a number of authors who contributed to this anthology will be sharing a short reading of their piece. The event will be hosted by J.F. Gerard, writer, editor, president of Dark Helix Press, and co-president of Canadian Author Association, Toronto Branch.
0: So if you haven't already registered, please do so and join us on May 27th to help celebrate Asian Heritage Month. We also have an incredible event coming up in June, but if you want to hear more about the Scotiabank Giller Prize winning author, who will be the feature of that event, you're just going to have to join us next week for part two of this episode.
1: Uh, yeah, we've got lots of big news coming up in part two, so you'll have to stay tuned. And as always, keep updated with our event calendar at canadianauthors.org slash toronto slash events. We're going to skip our writing contest portion this month in order to focus on bringing you more author content. But you can see contest opportunities and details at canadianauthors.org slash national, slash links, slash awards dash competitions.
0: Thanks, Chris. So now, it's time for what we've all been waiting for. Kick back, grab your glass of wine or your mug of tea, and settle in for some readings and fascinating discussions.
1: Our first guest today is R.A. Morris. R.A. Morris was raised in Ancaster, Ontario, and holds a Master of Environmental Studies from York University. After graduate school, he spent a year teaching science in the Honduras before heading back to Canada to work in the environmental sector. He has lived in the small remote communities of Fort Good Hope and the territorial capital of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. He currently lives in Toronto. His first novel, Beyond What Separates Us, is a timely work of speculative fiction that offers a glimpse of what societies may look like if we continue on our path of ecological degradation.
0: Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, So, our climate change is something that I'm also very passionate about. Uh, And I think that fiction has a very important role to play in changing the attitudes of the masses. And I saw one of your tweets a while back said, beyond what separates us is a timely look at what could happen if we continue to ignore our impact on this planet we call home. I'm wondering, can you just expand on that a little bit and maybe give us a little glimpse into the world you foresee without giving too much away? Sure.
2: I mean, we face at the moment, numerous kind of environmental challenges and crises. Um, The two most obvious being the continued loss of biodiversity and climate change. So this novel kind of explores a future world based on the expected impacts of, you know, our inability to recognize that the earth's resources are finite, and that nature's ability to adapt to over-exploitation of those resources is limited so this means a world where areas that are currently habitable are no longer fit for humans Um, there's coastal cities that have been lost to rising sea levels more frequent and intense storms uh, including extended periods of drought and floods and then the destruction of the oceans due to pollution overfishing uh, bleaching of coral reefs that sort of thing But since the novels told from the perspective of the four main characters, these issues are their lived experience. So it's, you know, it's to them, it's they don't know any different. Um, But kind of bring it back to present day. To me, I think this is why you see young people really leading the charge for change as they know that the world that they'll live in will be drastically different from the one we know today. And as someone that, you know, has studied this field and works in this field, the science has been saying the same thing for decades, um, which is why it's so frustrating for people that, you know, kind of live in this world. You know, we've kind of seen the same thing now with the COVID pandemic, where the science is either being ignored or manipulated by decision makers or other interests. So, you know, I think... Fiction can kind of play an important role in communicating science in a more vivid and accessible way.
1: Do you think maybe you could give us a little bit of a teaser of it? Sure, happy to. So I'm going to
2: read from the first chapter. This one is told from the perspective of a character set in Eastern Europe. It was hard not to think about that day. The images and sounds replayed in my subconscious haunting me for months after. The square crowded with thousands of unwashed and malnourished workers. The speeches that led to everyone's anger boiling over. The carts of food were the gravest mistake. We had no way to control the crowds. Once the shooting started, the screaming stampede drove me from Anna's side. Without Anna, I was a shell of a man. She was my heart and purpose. Before that day, I truly believed that all people could be categorized into four distinct types. After that day and my slow awakening to do something, I realized perhaps I'd been wrong about the four types. Each type had their own characteristics and responded to adversity differently. As things slowly went to shit in the world, my theory on the four types solidified. The first type of people were the fatalists. People would have called them submissive or pushovers. They spent their days striving to please others. Insecurities ate away at them. Most suffered from extreme anxiety. They were paranoid, fearful, passive, shy, and meek. When things got really bad, most of them couldn't handle it. They were the first to go. Suicides were common among the fatalists. They just couldn't cut it in a world without stability and comforts. It was easier to give up. Before things got bad, these were the people who had never really been challenged in their lives. Things were given to them, and people pitied them for their apparent modesty and passiveness. They had no place in the new world. They were easy pickings for one of the other types, the depraved. The second type of people were the depraved. These were the selfish, sadistic, cruel, and deranged. They have always existed, taking pleasure from the misery of others. History's dictators fits, fit nicely in this category. In functioning societies, laws were put in place to control these people. Some fell through the cracks to become the most violent of criminals. Others found different outlets for their depravity. Bullying, fighting, abusing, they hid their own securities to prey on others. When things got bad, these people thrived. They preyed on the fatalists and had good sport until there weren't very many fatalists left. They desired no structure, no order, no authority. Their world was one of chaos. The third type of people were the reconciled. I used to think they were similar to the fatalists, but the fatalists gave up. The Reconciled accepted their fate and lived with it. They weren't necessarily passive or fearful, just indifferent, complacent. They never really stood out from the crowd. They blended in, neither weak nor strong. They were the neutral players. They could get along with all the other types. When things got bad, they grinned and bore it. Neither selfish nor selfless, they just survived. These were the most abundant people. The ones who stayed in a job they neither hated nor loved, but did because it kept them in relative comfort. They were creatures of routine, unwilling or reluctant to fight for change and easy to persuade and control. The final type had always been the least common. They were the valiant, the selfless heroes humanity had always revered. Children grew up pretending to be them. We created cartoons, comics, and fictions about their deeds. We gave them powers and moral codes. They were uncompromising, fearless, ambitious, and brave. The people who sacrificed themselves to save others. The ones who gave no thought to their own well-being. The problem was they've always been too few. Because of their sacrificial and selfless nature, when things got tough, they tended to not be around too long. The valiant were the dreamers and idealists. They believed in the common good. These are the people we should have put in power. Unfortunately, they never desired power or glory. The fatalists wished they could be them. The reconciled wanted to help and serve them. And the deranged, they wanted to destroy them, like the comic book villains that our heroes battled day in and day out. I thought there must be still some out there, hiding and waiting for the right time to make the world a better place. At least I hoped. If I had to categorize myself, I guess I'd be among the reconciled. I dreamed of being one of the valiant and had plenty of opportunities over the years to try, but I was too selfish for their ranks. I didn't want to see others harmed. I wanted the world to be a better place, but would I stick out my neck for someone else in mortal danger? For so long, I didn't think so. On the day that still haunts me, I had a chance to prove my devotion, my strength, and courage. Yet I did nothing. I ran away and hid, leaving braver people behind.
1: That sounds amazing, Uh, Ari.
0: Great excerpts. That definitely makes me want to read the book and hear more about these different groups.
1: Yeah, I've started it, and I have to say, I, I really like I want to be a valiant especially after listening to you say it but yeah.
2: that's really the question right like where do you see yourself as you're reading it kind of yeah and then where do you see the other characters
1: realistically I think I'm probably more reconciled but hey now I have a goal <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd have to agree with that I want to be valiant but probably more in the reconciled realm
1: it's where where did you get the ideas for those kind of different I no. don't <laughs>
2: It's strange, If have asked like kind of what I kind of started putting this together. I guess I I had never really written fiction in any way or anything like that. Um, you know, I've always with my career kind of been uh, writing government reports and <laughs> other things like scientific documents, technical documents, those sorts of things. Um, but I was living in Yellowknife at the time and just started getting an idea for one of the characters. Um, and started writing you know a story set in the future um, to kind of as a way of an outlet for expressing my own anxieties about the future and then it kind of just slowly built from there um, to kind of place four main characters in different parts of the world and kind of present like a what that world could look like in the future and then you know the four types kind of came back just in terms of my own thinking of you know how you can kind of divide up society uh based on even kind of what we're what we're seeing now you know and someone very politically engaged uh, so kind of get frustrated sometimes when the pace of change
0: wow so but we're wondering um Beyond What Separates Us was released in September 2020 in the middle of the pandemic Uh, So how have you adapted your your marketing strategies?
2: Admittedly, it's been a struggle, um, particularly as an independent author. But one of the first things I did was participate in an organized blog tour from a company that provides that service. That resulted in some of my first reviews from book bloggers and uh, influencers to get a readership outside of the one that already knew me but since then I've kind of been contacting independent bookstores about carrying it, um, but most haven't been really taking on new stock, the challenges of the pandemic. Um, I did manage to get signed copies in the independent bookstore in Yellowknife So that was kind of the first store that it's actually in, you know, lived there where I began writing it. Other than that, I've kind of been trying to participate in things like this, other things that the Canadian Authors Association's been putting on. I participated in the fall in the Toronto Eco Fair, the virtual Eco Fair. So admittedly, I have to to up my social media game as well. (laughs) It's a challenge. How,
1: How did you find the blog tour? I was just doing a
2: Google search and like reading reviews. So it was I read book tours that I did it through um, the company. Um, So most of the, there ended up being 16 bloggers and influencers that signed up for it, um, all based in the States. And, you know, I I don't know how successful it is, it was, um, you know, it didn't really seem to generate too much in the way of sales. But like I said, it did, Um, A handful of the blog tour and influencers that signed up actually did end up posting reviews of the book on Amazon and Goodreads and other Mm -hmm. places. So I think in that sense, it was helpful to at least get some initial reviews out there.
1: People love to see reviews.
0: And you published with uh, Iguana Books, right? A a hybrid. press. I know that's something that's quite interesting to a lot of our listeners and members. Could you tell us a little bit about how you found that type of experience?
2: Yeah. um, Iguana Books, they're great about explaining the process and the difference between traditional and self-publishing and kind of where they fit into it. Um, I did do the usual query letters to dozens of publishers and agents and actually ended up getting a response from Iguana pretty early on Um, but they encouraged me to actually try to find a traditional publisher as they believed kind of my novel warranted going that route but after another year of kind of searching around and not really hearing anything um, I decided to connect with Iguana again and they said they'd be happy to publish it and work with me so it's a very small and independent and professional team. Um, it was pretty important to me to use a Canadian publisher. It was a bonus that, you know, they are based in Toronto. Um, I'm living in Toronto at the time. Um, they're actually like a few blocks from where I live. So <laughs> it was pretty convenient in that regard. I'd say for those considering going that route, to know that the publishing costs, which are pretty significant are on you as the author. However, Iguana Books does encourage and helps uh, Authors with crowdfunding um, to help offset some of the costs. So I ended up doing that as well.
1: Um, You did do the crowdfunding, uh, yeah.
2: But again, you know, that was kind of in the spring and summer up to the lead up to September. Um, So again, we were in the kind of middle of a pandemic. So (laughs) uh, didn't necessarily get the, the traction I was hoping for with the crowdfunding, but it did help, you know, offset some of the costs.
0: So you may have uh, ended up working with our uh, Toronto branch co-president, Lee Parpart. Yes,
2: she was. Yeah, she wasn't actually the editor for me, but she ended up helping in the lead up to publication with some of the social media promotion um, and like event type support. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have have subsequently virtually met and connected.
1: So, yeah. yeah. Once all this is over, we'll get together in person. Person. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, R.A., thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, thank you so much for being here.
1: I can't wait to keep reading uh, Beyond What Separates Us. So, and yeah, okay. very happy still to hear your thoughts. Aren't oh, you yeah, there? for sure. For sure. Hi, I'm Ed
3: Seward, author of Fair, a literary novel that explores the life of Ian a young homeless man, all but invisible, as he wanders through Venice Beach and Los Angeles. Ian is befriended by a man known as The Professor and joins him in downtown Skid Row, the largest homeless community in North America, where they find themselves terrorized by a sinister gang of drug dealers. As The Professor reads Milton's Paradise Lost to Ian on the streets of the City of Angels, Ian begins to wonder, if even the Angels can find themselves at war, what hope? and What kind of home exists for him? You're listening to Words with Writers podcast, celebrating members of the Canadian Authors Association. I've been a member for over a decade, and Canadian Authors has connected me with a wide variety of writers, whether they are just beginning their journey or are long established. A collection of novelists, poets, and nonfiction writers, this community shares experiences, challenges, and opportunities. Whether it's monthly events that can include diverse guest speakers, ranging from award-winning writers to literary agents. representatives of traditional and self-publishing, or simply belonging to the local CAA writing circle to provide and receive feedback on new work, I feel very much part of our writing community. And being active in the Canadian Authors Association helped me to understand the many facets of Canada's publishing industry, which in turn helped me in finding a publisher for FAIR. All of this underscores the association's model, writers helping writers. So let me say, Congratulations Canadian Authors Association on 100 years of Writers Helping Writers.
0: is Mark Leslie Lefebvre. Mark's first short story appeared in print in 1992, the same year he started working in the book industry. He has published more than 25 books under the name Mark Leslie that include thrillers and fiction, including Evasion, A Canadian Werewolf in New York, and Fear and Longing in Los Angeles. Paranormal non-fiction such as Haunted Hospitals, Spooky Sudbury, and Tomes of Terror, and anthologies like Campus Chills, Tesseract's 16, and Obsessions. Under his full name, he writes books to help authors navigate publishing. And they include the seven P's of publishing success, and an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores. His industry experience includes president of the Canadian Booksellers Association, Board Member of BookNet Canada, Director of Author Relations and Self-Publishing for Rakuten Kobo, Director of Business Development for Draft2Digital, and Professional Advisor for Sheridan College's Creative Writing and Publishing Honours Program. Mark lives in Waterloo, Ontario, and can be found online at www.marklesley.ca. Welcome to the show, Mark.
4: Oh, thanks, Brandy. It's uh, great to be here.
1: Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you here, Mark. Uh, I actually read your first uh, Canadian werewolf book a while ago, and then I was sitting at a Haunted Walk series um earlier this year, and I saw, I was like, hey, I think that's, I I know that guy.
4: (laughs) We were both in the audience, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sitting around the virtual fire. (laughs)
4: That was fun. That was fun. It was nice and toasty and a little chilly, too. Uh, Right.
1: (laughs) 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 Uh, So, Mark, one of the things that I find most admirable, just dive right in, uh, about about you is how diverse your portfolio is um, in terms of subject matter and medium uh like you've delved into pretty much all of modern media I think for your work are there um, anything yeah is is there anything you like more than others or
4: lately uh lately the the genre of comedy has been fun and lately um experimenting with different audio and video storytelling has been fun for me uh i will always return to writing and oftentimes, that will start with some sort of script anyways that has to be written. But I really love that um, multidimensionality because, I guess, I've always believed I'm a storyteller, and I always know I will write, and I always know I will tell stories. And, and it started when, with the pandemic, actually. I was having trouble writing, actually writing. I was you know, frustrated and anxious, and there was a lot going on, and I turned to parody. And parody video, uh, you know, writing parody music video. And and, uh, and my partner uh, and I ended up doing a duet, a parody, and we did a video to it. And that broke me out of my so-called writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um, because it proved to me that I could be a storyteller. I could still have the storyteller life in mm-hmm. other media. And even prior to that, taking some of the ghost stories and using a, an audio GPS-based map. To go back to the research I'd done for my very first book with Dunder and uh, Haunted Hamilton, and readapting that same content into a virtual half-hour walking tour. And I think readapting stuff that you've worked on already into new formats is almost as exciting as writing new stuff, right? You can take the same nugget and explode it into more than 300 pages down between two pieces of cloth, right? The definition of book.
0: Mm -hmm. You get, you know, different experiences, with just kind of one piece of work. So that's very interesting. So you have something to read for us today, correct?
4: Yeah. So this is a, a short story, short, short story called The Shadow Men. And it was written specifically to be read aloud in front of a campfire. So I thought, uh, nice and short, it's a self-contained story. And it was actually derived from a different short story that I wrote that was much longer. And it was like this little aspect that I had in it, and I just wasn't done playing with it. So I wrote it specifically for an anthology uh, for that purpose, like Campfire Ghost Stories. So this is the, uh, The Shadow Men. I'll never forget the night that changed my life forever. It happened in the woods when I was 10 years old. It was dark, the air was crisp and chilly. Curious little sounds cut through the night. Small animals rustling in the nearby bushes, the haunting call of a loon on the lake, leaves whispering in the breeze. And the air was charged with the smell of the still-burning campfire embers of a recently doused campfire. It was a night, in fact, not all that different than tonight. I was sleeping in a four-man tent with my parents and younger brother and woke up with an overwhelming urge to pee. I crawled out of my sleeping bag, careful not to wake anyone else, slipped outside the tent and headed down the moonlit path to where I remembered the outhouse was. Before I took more than a dozen steps, I heard a noise behind me, the crack of a branch breaking underfoot. With my hairs standing on edge, I managed not to let out a yelp as I turned. There on the path, not three steps behind me, stood my little brother. Look on his cute button-nosed face like I'd just caught him sneaking a treat from the cookie jar. Jimmy! I whispered what are you doing he stood with his right leg partially crossing over the left. need to pee he said shifting his weight from foot to foot jeez Jimmy if you had to go that bad why'd you wait so long because he said his six-year-old eyes widened bright in the reflected moonlight the shadow man might get me I felt a shiver run down my spine despite the fact that I knew the shadow men were something my father had conjured up that evening around the campfire they were the boogeymen of the New Hampshire wilderness that hid behind trees and lurked in the shadows. Their sole purpose was to trick little boys down the wrong path in the woods, deeper and deeper into the forest and far away from the safety of their parents. Even at 10, I knew my father told a story to use for fun and perhaps partially to keep us from wandering far from them. You know, but when Jimmy said that, I still felt a chill. Shadowmen aren't real, Jimmy. Aren't they? Listen. At just that moment, the haunting call of a loon echoed through the forest, delivering a deep shiver up the base of my spine. That's just a loon, I said. But the chill wouldn't go away. No, listen, Charlie, it's a little boy, one that the shadow man tricked. He's warning us. Frustrated with my brother and okay, a little frightened. I just wanted it to end. I didn't want to hear anymore. So I thought I'd throw a good scare into him. I turned and ran down the path. Jimmy, I called out, behind you. The shadow men are behind you. He let out a cry. Wait! Able to see the path clearly in the moonlight, I ran fast, took a sharp turn and ducked down behind a low bush. Jimmy ran past me, still calling ahead on the trail for me to stop, panic rising in his voice as he seemed to think I'd already gotten far ahead of him. I had to put my hands on my mouth to suppress a laugh. But I stayed silent that way, listening to the padding of his footfalls on the packed earth path. And his calls for me to wait for him receding into the darkness. His last cry was drowned out by the shrill call of a loon in the distance. And I never saw him again. But I hear him all the time. Now every time I'm out in the wilderness out camping, I can hear my little brother's voice. Somewhere masked within the sad, mournful, unearthly half-laughing, half-wailing cry of a loon, I can hear my little brother warning me that the shadow men are near. Just listen, tell me what you hear. And ideally, if you read that in front of a campfire in you know Northern Ontario or in New England, maybe just at the right time, a loon will call and freak the hell out of everyone.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not around a campfire right now, but when you said, and I never saw him again, I went, what? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, that was great. Thank and
1: you. I, I think that shiver and chill is something probably everyone who's gone camping has experienced when they, they're they like, I really don't <laughs> want to pee right now. It's too dark. <laughs>
4: I got to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Anybody I mean, who can do before knows that feeling of putting it
4: in. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Brandy. I cut <laughs> you off there.
0: <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs>
4: I was just going to say, uh, when I tell ghost stories in person, I, you know, you can read the people's faces and then you, you you play into them as you're, as you're telling the story. But that's one of the ones where if you have someone planted just <laughs> and then they let out a shriek, <laughs> just as you say, just listen. And then ah! like, that's the kind of jump scare that really makes it that much more memorable for people. <laughs> uh, so Mark,
1: you're, that was an awesome story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, to touch briefly. So you're very passionate about self-publishing and print-on-demand as as options. Um, can you tell us anything about your successes and
4: challenges with it? Yeah. So I think the the biggest uh, the biggest thing that I recognize is the value of both traditional publishing and self-publishing. And I think if authors only consider one, they're kind of cutting their opportunities in half, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. I make most of my money from traditional publishing with print book sales and most of my money from self-publishing with ebook sales Hmm. um, because there's, there's different benefits there. And so what I always uh, tell authors to think about is every single project that you do may have uh, a better path or a a path that works better for you. Or again, you can split it off. Like, like I said, I sold the rights to a publisher with haunted Hamilton. Uh, I've used some of the research to, to, to create other, digital content like the gps enabled uh and even sometimes it's an ebook sometimes it's whatever um so i think that the important thing that authors should consider is it's not just thinking about okay i'm going to put my ebook up on amazon there are many many other options there's many opportunities there's platforms like wattpad where you can you know experiment and and play with um they're, they're they're not as uh critical if you put up a first draft like I put up my novel evasion after the first draft was just spit out after NanoRimo, just to see eh, is this any good does anyone like it people loved it to death uh, in which case I ended up hiring an editor to actually edit it uh, Wattpad featured it it's had over 300,000 reads there but the two biggest common questions I had were where can I buy this in print or ebook <laughs> so so then I put out the audiobook and then I put out the print book and the, and the ebook and 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 made that available now the the next common question is when's book two coming which i have failed miserably at so that would be my advice don't do what i did i had three first three book ones out and no book twos (laughs) not not a good strategy don't do as donnie don't does over here
0: (laughs) fair enough Well, I mean, many of our listeners and ourselves included, of course, uh, struggle with balancing writing with a working life. You have over 25 books and stories, um, plus publishing, editing, uh, very active professional life. So how do you find the time to be creative?
4: Uh, I I think I'm lucky that I'm creative in everything I do. So I still, uh, and I wouldn't do the work that I do if I wasn't able to be creative. And potentially that's usually when I move on to a different job uh, or role and say, well, I'm done here. I'm done creating. I left Kobo because we had already built something pretty awesome and there was less new things to create and I was feeling stifled. So I'm like, I think I need to change. Um, But one of the things that is really, really critically important is, and I did this when I was working a corporate job and I still do it today. Is i still get up super early my dad was a fisherman so i think i come by that naturally i get up super early five in the morning five thirty in the morning and i dedicate that first hour or two to writing and and creativity i tend to be more creative in the light of a full moon or something uh, or just nocturnal um, and then because once i start doing the maintenance tasks and the marketing tasks and all the other tasks that are associated with the business a different part of my brain kicks in and i'm not I'm creative in a different way, uh, so I always uh, I always have to uh, put it in my calendar and make it a priority to get those things done. Because when I don't write, I'm a pretty miserable person to be around. When I'm not creative, when I'm not able to express myself, just mm-hmm. ask, uh, my partner Liz she'll uh, she'll tell you <laughs> when I'm not when I don't have those creative juices flowing. I'm pretty crabby because there's something wrong with me, right? I'm not I'm not the way I want to be or naturally inclined to be.
1: It's part of your being,
4: exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to say, my uh, my father was a fisherman too. I grew up in Nova Scotia, and he was uh, a lobster fisherman and all all that kind of stuff. Um, but I did not get the love for getting up early. No. Unfortunately,
4: <laughs> I grew into it over the years. But it was kind of like my dad was the one who woke up the rooster, who woke up the sun. You know that kind of thing.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I struggle a little bit. I think because I wake up at four. 4 30 for work every day anyway so i just i can't bring myself to wake up earlier than that um yeah
0: is there no No.
4: (laughs) although when i'm on deadline i don't go to bed like when i have a contract that's due i'm often the people say well how long does it take to write a book i'm like well um five days (laughs) five full days like 18 hours a day if you actually do. because when the deadline's coming to get that manuscript turned in there have been times where i was like well yeah okay i'll take friday off work and monday off work and i'll write the book this weekend (laughs) no that's usually after having done all the research uh uh, but that's uh that's where i kind of go to bed at three and then get up at five (laughs) right but i can't do that you know that's not sustainable long term i need at least five hours sleep every night
1: yeah. I, I guess I've gone through spurts of that when I'm doing NaNoWriMo or when I'm really in depth with
4: something too. So. Yeah. Deadline, right? Pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Queen and David Bowie there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Don't make me Yeah, sense. I just
4: put an earworm in your head, didn't I?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did.
1: Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank and, you uh, very much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And uh, look forward to having you back in the future and explore some of your nonfiction work a little more. Excellent.
4: Um,
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: Thanks for being here. Bye Bye.
1: The interview you are about to listen to contains a reading that realistically depicts the treatment of black people in 1940s and 50s Nova Scotia and is based on a true event in Canadian history that sparked a focused effort on increasing rights for black people in Canada. If you have been the focus of racial hate and slurs, you may find the piece triggering, but we believe it is important that stories like these be told. Our next guest today is Andrea Scott. Andrea is a writer and producer from London, Ontario, originally. Her first play, Eating Pomegranates Naked, won the RBC Arts Professional Award and named Outstanding Ensemble and Outstanding Production at the 2013 Summer Works Festival. Better Angels, a parable, won the Summer Works Award for production and was recognized as Outstanding New Play. Outstanding Ensemble, Outstanding Direction, and Outstanding Production by Now Magazine in 2015. It had its U.S. debut at the Athena Festival in Chicago, was adapted for CBC's Play Me podcast series, and was published in 2018, along with Eating Pomegranates Naked by Sirocco Press. Don't Talk to Me Like I'm Your Wife won the Kale Chernin Award for Theatre and followed by a successful run at SummerWorks. Her play about Viola Desmond, Controlled Damage, had its sold-out world premiere at Neptune Theatre in 2020. Welcome to the show, Andrea.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing bio.
0: (laughs) And I have to make titles just get me, like Eating Pomegranates Naked and Don't Talk to Me Like I'm Your Wife. Those are some great titles.
5: Yes, I have a reputation for uh, coming up with memorable titles.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And uh, we've never actually had a playwright on the show. So it's it's awesome to have you here.
5: Oh, well, thank you. Um,
1: yeah. What?
5: what? <laughs> Bananas. I know. our Bananas.
0: <laughs> we'll have four now, though.
5: Good.
1: Oh, well, for sure. For sure. So what, uh, can you tell us what drew you into wanting to be a playwright? Like-
5: Um, I decided to become a playwright because I was tired of the roles that I was being offered as an actor. Um, I went to University of Toronto for theatre, have an undergrad in theatre, and then I have a master's in film and television and theatre studies. Um, But I always thought I would become an actor, and I did. I worked professionally for several years. But then I started to get really tired of the, I found two dimensional roles that I was being offered. And I also felt like a lot of the roles for black women that um, I had to audition for were usually just um, kind of superficial in that they supported the protagonist journey and gave no inner life to the woman on stage. Um, They didn't have a lot of agency. They were already there to serve one person story, and it was usually a white person. So I thought, I can write better than this. I'm going to see what I can do to, you know, broaden the amount of opportunities for Black women on stage by creating really interesting, complicated, not always likable roles for women. And that's how I wrote Eating Pomegranates Naked, which is about fertility and about the relationship between couples when one decides they don't want to have children.
1: I love the admirable goal of increasing the presence of, of black bodies as well.
5: mm-hmm. on stage. And black absolutely. females,
1: black females on stage. For, yes.
5: Yes. And being allowed to be challenging and, and difficult, but also deserving of love and respect. So that's kind of been my objective with every play that I've written. Nice.
0: Good. I, I love too, that you said you were given roles that, you know, were two dimensional. They just weren't good roles um, in, in, how you see these experiences and Mm -hmm. so you thought you know what I can write better than this I can write roles for black women better than these and you and so you went that way I think that's Mm -hmm. great (laughs) thank
5: you thank you I seem to have done all right with it
1: (laughs) and I I think you're going to give us a treat of getting to listen to one of them yes
5: yes yes i am and ironically enough this is a three-hander with three black men so this actually doesn't have any female voices in it so i'll be playing three different characters it's from my play control damage control damage is a play that i wrote about the life of viola desmond um i think most people i would hope know who she uh was and you know now exists within our culture as being on the ten dollar bill um viola desmond uh Was a a hairdresser and a business owner who researched and developed her own cosmetics and uh, was selling them across Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and had driven, was driving to Sydney to sell some of her product when her car broke down in New Glasgow. Um, While her car was being fixed, she was. it was suggested that she go and see a movie. So she went across the street to watch a film. And while she was there, she was told that she could not sit in the lower level because it was only for white people and coming from Halifax and essentially coming from a bit of privilege because she was mixed race. She did not, acquiesce and refuse to move. Um, She offered to pay the difference to sit in the balcony, but uh, they refused her money and said, no, uh, colored people don't sit down here. And the police were called and she was physically removed and put in jail. Um, She was charged the next day with defrauding the province of Halifax. province of Nova Scotia of one penny. And she had to pay a $26 fine, which in our day would be $260. Um, She tried to get this overturned and was rejected. And unfortunately this affected her marriage. She ended up leaving her husband and moved to the United States where she died at the age of 50 on her kitchen floor. So it's a very sad story. And I always want people to remember how many people have fought and lost but then we ultimately did win um here we are in 2021 so this is three men who are talking about what happened to viola three black men sitting in their kitchen gossiping the name of this scene is black guys except i spelt guys g-u-i-s-e and uh here we go black guys all set all right I'm just asking. I know what you're asking. No, you don't. My question is, why she have to go back to court about it, huh? She charged and paid the fine. That's it. It's done. Move on, man. She done suffered enough. It's not bad enough she has to deal with ugly in New Glasgow, where she don't even live. But she have to make a fuss and cause trouble here? Nah, man. Move on. I think misery loves company. I agree. You agree? You see that? I got some support over here. She uppity. What? She one of them light-skinned gal that think that what happened to her happened to all of us. And we know that ain't true. No, no, we don't know what she's been through. She's been discriminated against just like us. Like us? You and me? You got a college education? <laughs> He's right. I mean, I've only but nodded to her when I go to Jack's Barber's shop. She tiny too. When you say tiny, what do you mean? You know, little, real small, like. And he holds his hand above the ground way too low. yey ha! Oh, so she a midget. Ah, no, man, she's not a midget. She's just about this big. Raises his hand about four feet. (laughs) Ooh, No bigger than my Jenny. How old is she now? 13 next month. Christmas, baby. Yeah, February was long and cold, you know. (laughs) So imagine two big white men putting their hands on your jenny. Imagine it. Listen, Viola, she nice and all, but she has ears. Went to some fancy school. Who here can afford to do that? None of us upstanding law-abiding Negroes. I don't like that word. What word? Negro. Well, that's what you is, ain't you? No, I'm a colored man. In the United States, they got the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, not Negro. What's wrong with Negro? It's better than Coon and web, better than nigger. Negro is a slave owned by Massa. <laughs> we all come from slaves. Nothing to be ashamed of. Well, I'm from loyalist stock. Yeah, and they came from slaves, freedmen. Ah, oh, man, you're just like that Desmond woman. Forget who you are, colored, Negro, coon, darky, gollywog, gollywog. Yeah, that's what the Brits called us during the war. Whites ain't never gonna call us what we want, which is our God-given name. That God-given name is our slave name, given to us by our owners. You know that, right? You think too much and worry about things that ain't a problem. If I want to go to the movies, eat buttered corn, and kick back, I don't wanna do it sitting next to some white man who cut me as soon as say howdy boo to me. That woman just had to make a point. Yeah, and and what point was that? You know, I don't know. She wasn't going to change anyone's mind about letting Negroes sit downstairs. I like sitting with Negroes. You're my people. Right, you don't wanna sit with us? Then I got to ask, what's wrong with me? one's right with the white people. And uh, Pitman? Yeah, brother. You gotta spare 30 cents so I can catch a picture? I hear the big sleepers playing. <laughs> Let me make that fortune cause y'all gonna want some popcorn. <laughs> you ever think that instead of blaming her for wanting more than what we got, we should blame the ones for putting it in front of us and telling us we can't have it? She got more than all of us, man. I got no problem with Jack. That's a good man and cut my hair fine, but the fact is they don't want for what we want. Jack is running his barbershop and she is right there alongside him in her beauty parlor. It ain't cheap for ladies to get their hair done. So Vi's got plenty of business. Yeah, and don't forget about school. That's right, yeah, she also teaches school. So when you step back, you see money going into their pockets from barbering and hairdos, yes, yes, and teaching. And they ain't got no picnic either. That's right. How long they been married anyway? Got to be more than 20 years now, huh? And all that money goes to them. Her fight, and it's hers, I tell you, cause Jackie ain't got no part of that either, is not mine. I'm not fighting to eat out in some diner. My Gladys can cook 100 times better than any of them so-called cooks in restaurants that don't want my money. Pittman, you fought for this country. Don't you think you deserve to be allowed to go and do a dinner and have a cup of coffee? Deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. What do I want is what you should be asking. Viola she think she know what I want and she don't. I don't think she, everything she does is for her. She's not thinking about her husband and she ain't thinking about us. And when she wasn't sitting with those Negroes she was saying something. Uh-huh, that we should have the right to sit where we want no she was saying she was better than us them half cast, stop you know i'm right what i know is that the fish rots from the head
0: wow you are so amazing at, at the presentation of that that's like you kind of feel like you're at the theater watching that but yeah well, thank you very much thank you, thank you very much
5: <laughs> <Thank>
1: you. <laughs>
0: Of fun doing it too, you look like you just love doing that, so
5: (laughs) I love that scene. I love that scene,
1: it was a a beautiful and very powerful scene, too. So it's it's awesome. Thank you, yeah, awesome. Um. sorry. (laughs) I just still playing it over in my head.
5: (laughs) You should see the scene. I can't wait for it to come to Toronto and you can all see what a great, great scene that is with those three men. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Have they started booking anything yet or it's all still on hold for everything?
5: Everything is on hold right now. I mean, there was a couple of theaters that was talking to my agent about it, but I mean, the more things kept getting prolonged and people didn't feel safe that nobody has uh, pulled the trigger. So. I don't know either.
1: Yeah. <laughs> how uh, how long did it take you to, to write your first play?
5: Um, the first play, I would say a couple of years, Eating Pomegranates Naked, was such an interesting process for me because I came up with the title first. And the title has been living, in, had lived in my head for, I think, 15 years. And I was like, one day I'm going to use that for either a novel or a short story. Um, but I had a friend who was getting tired of people asking when her and her husband were going to have kids. And, you know, she had told me, you know, I don't think I want kids. And then her husband said, if you don't get pregnant, if you don't want to have a baby with me, I'm going to leave you. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting topic. The pressure women are under from society as well as their partners, because sometimes you get married, both agreeing that you want kids and then you get married and you're like, I just like us. I want this. And then find out that it's just not that easy. So I'm not married. I don't have children, but I do find it an interesting conundrum that a lot of women find themselves in. And Black women are for some reason perceived sometimes within society as being very maternal. I mean, that's where the mammy imagery comes from, always having to take care of other people's children. Um, So I think that there is almost this idea that it's, it's just part of who we are is to mother and take care of of people and children. And I wanted to have a character to say, I like my job. I like my husband. I like my life. I don't want kids. And what that does to a relationship and whether you can um, weather that storm. Dark. (laughs) (laughs) i mean i will say that it was like the first half of the play is quite funny and then it it becomes quite serious which was criticism that some people had but then also some people loved it um proving that you just you can't give everybody what they want you just can't
3: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
1: no and it's it's life right that's that's how life is
5: Yeah. It's one of the things that I, I tried when I I taught you university this year and I was teaching playwriting and I tried to keep reminding the students who would like give me submissions, like, where's the joy? You know, everything was so serious and heavy. And I understand that because my work was like that at first. And I had a dramaturg, uh, Marjorie Chan, who um, runs uh, theater Pass Mariah, say, where's the love? Where's the joy? Because people don't live lives of just unending misery we there is some dancing there is some singing that you do even when you are unhappy in your life sometimes and i feel like the last year has proven that like yes it has been quite miserable but there have been moments where you have cranked your i don't know your garth brooks or your mariah carey and sang in your kitchen and had an impromptu dance party to beyonce's homecoming and you there are glimmers of joy and there are moments of happiness and we need to reflect that in our art it can't all be oh everything is terrible um so i i usually have to go over my scripts and just sketch that in add a little something that brings it up add a little bit of lemon to brighten it add a little bit of whipped cream to make it more delicious (laughs) but i mean that's why you have to write multiple drafts
1: (laughs) of course Absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's a good description. You're making me hungry now. Though.
1: <laughs> oh
0: <laughs> oh whipped cream. <laughs> yes. More whipped cream.
1: Can't can't go wrong with whipped cream. Right?
0: You really can't.
5: You really can't.
6: Hello. I am A.B. Neely, author of Kalala, a fantasy horror book about a young woman from Congo who has to uh, run away from a terrible entity called the Black and has to fight uh, her own convictions and beliefs to discover which is her true tradition. You are listening to Words with Writers podcast, and I have been a member of Canadian Authors Association for two years. And what I really loved about this association is the people. I have met such wonderful people here, and I am a member of the Annex Writing Circle and they are so helpful. I mean, I have learned so much, not only receiving their critique for my writing, but also uh, doing it myself. So I'm really grateful for all the wonderful people that is part of Canadian Authors and all the support I'm receiving from this wonderful, wonderful association. Congratulations to Canadian Authors Association on 100 years of writers helping writers.
0: our final guest for the day is Rosanna Machilata Battigelli, a professional member of the Writers Union of Canada, the Canadian Authors Association, the Association of Italian Canadian Writers, and Canscape. An alumna of the Humber School for Writers, she has been published in 19 anthologies and journals. She lives in Sudbury and has also done readings in Toronto, Sault Ste. Marie, Manitoulin Island, Montreal, Vancouver, New York City, and Italy. Rosanna's novel, La Brigantessa, published by Inanna in 2018, was awarded gold for historical fiction in the 2019 Independent Publisher Book Awards and was a finalist for the 2019 Canadian Authors Association Fred Kerner Book Award and the 2019 Northern Lit Award. It won two awards for Best Cover Art, designed by Fau Bullard. Rosanna has two children's books published by Pajama Press and four books published with Harlequin, with the fifth to be released in July 2021. Her fiction collection, Pigeon Soup and Other Stories, will be released by Inanna Publications in June 2021. Welcome to the show, Rosanna.
7: Thanks so much, Brandy and Chris and Happy to be here. Thank you.
1: It's great to have you here. Um, mm-hmm. Finally, in person, because we get to talk about you so much in our members news.
7: <laughs> That's why my ears have been burning so much, Chris.
0: Why?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right, it's our fault. we apologize
0: we're not sorry, because it's all good news that you have. So we want to share it.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so just I wanted to to ask you, Rosanna, after listening to your bio, you, you've got so many different types of writing, um, like children's stories, historical fiction novels, Harlequin romance. What inspires you?
7: Well, I always wanted to write. Actually, I had two passions. From the time I was young, I wanted to be a teacher. And I, I knew I was going to be a teacher by the time I was in grade five. And, you know, between the ages of probably six and really, up until high school, I, I just loved reading and and actually reading did not stop after high school. <laughs> I, I loved books so much. and I wanted to be a teacher. and I also had a fascination with books and and just wanted to be a writer. While I was teaching, and, you know, doing everything possible to inspire children, I was also investing in myself as a writer. So for, for many, many years, I did everything possible to become a writer, joining uh, book clubs, uh, joining uh, writing groups, starting with the writing group in Sudbury. And then um, you know, I connected with the Canadian Authors Association. I believe in 1992. And I just, uh, you know, everything I had to do to realize my goal, I did. I uh, went to writing workshops. I took some mentorships with the Humber School for Writers. I read hundreds of books about the art and craft of writing. and And so as I was teaching, I was sending off stories. So I started off by writing stories and trying to build up my writing history, my my writing portfolio. And as these stories got accepted, I became more and more confident. And at a certain point in time, I was inspired to write a novel. And so the inspiration for that came from my history. So I was born in Italy, we immigrated when I was three. And, you know, at a certain age, I became very interested in my heritage and I wanted to explore because when you're an immigrant you don't just have one identity you have two and I you know I was Italian and then I I was trying to learn how to become a Canadian so I started school not knowing a word of English and that might have been you know the impetus to learn and as I learned the language I learned to love books. So anyway, I I did everything possible to learn the craft and the art. And I started collecting a lot of books on my particular history, my Italian history. And the more I read, one period stood out in my mind. And that was the period after Unification. Unification of Italy happened in 1861. Because prior to that, different parts of Italy were ruled by different rulers. The Austrians, you know, they, there were so many invaders in, in Italy. Uh, you know, the Normans, the, the Spanish Bourbons, the, uh, the Arabs. And, and so I became fascinated with what, what happened in Italy at that time to cause this um, movement of unification and under one king and... And then what I found out was that there was a lot of uh, turbulence and a rebellion after unification because what happened was with the uh, installation of a new government from the north, uh, it imposed a lot of harsh taxes all over and it really affected the southerners. And the southerners were poor agrarian peoples and, and they suffered and, and there was a lot of starvation and poverty and there was rebellion and the government went after these rebels and I was fascinated to learn that the government treated these rebels as enemies and wanted to wipe them out and so what I did was in my research I researched you know the politics the religion um, you know the women the different roles of women at the time the church the position of the church so as I read there were certain personalities that stood out, the peasant family, the priest, because religion played a very important part in the community. And so I drew upon everything that I read, and I decided that I was going to write a novel based on true facts, what was going on in southern Italy at the time, which is You know, Calabria was where I was born, and I have six main characters in the novel, and these characters represent the people living at the time and involved in this web of rebellion and drama. And what came out of it was the knowledge that these rebels were called briganti, brigands, and they were pursued relentlessly by some very ruthless lawmakers. And they did what they had to do to survive. They went into hiding many of them. But the government, as I mentioned, pursued them and punished them very harshly. And some of these rebels were um, joined by their wives or their lovers. And these women joined these men. And these brigands really, they hid out in groups called bands. And the brigantesse were the women that joined the men in the bands. And so the, basically this book features a young peasant woman who is, she is forced to leave her little community because of a crime she committed in self-defense against a wealthy landowner. And mm-hmm. the forces of law pursue her. And so we see all the, the people in this period of history um, and how their lives intersect and uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to highlight this period of Italian history because a lot of people don't know about it. And and I'm very pleased with the the fact that I was able to do so.
1: Sounds absolutely fascinating.
7: And you have uh, an excerpt
0: from La Brigantessa you're going to read for us today? Mm-hmm.
7: Yes, I do. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, perfect.
7: Awesome. I'll just uh, preface this little reading uh, by sharing the fact that Gab- Gabriella is uh, the, the young peasant woman, and there's uh, a young man in the community who has proclaimed his love for her at a secret meeting and she hasn't shared that with her with her father or anybody. And unfortunately, there are some circumstances that uh, occur that, well, let's put it this way, their lives are about to change. This chapter explains uh, the inciting incident in the book that precipitates the journey that all of them are about to uh, go on. Don Simone, by the way, is the name of the priest. He is a mentor to Gabriella. In fact, Gabriella and her father work for him. When Don Simone returns from saying mass, the pigeon soup is simmering in a big pot. Gabriela throws in a few bay leaves and joins her father at the sturdy oak table. Don Simone sits down with a sigh, a letter in one hand. His brows furrow and he begins tapping the table with his other hand. Gabriela notices its slight tremble. I have received some disturbing news Don Simone wipes his brow. His gaze flies to her father and back to her. I wish I didn't have to tell you this. At these words, her father sets down his cup of goat's milk with a clatter and frowns. What is it? Is farmer Basilio complaining about our animals encroaching on his pastures again? His mouth tightens in a narrow line. I told him I'd fix the fence and I did but I wouldn't put it past him to loosen the post on purpose so he could collect another fine, the sneaky. No, no, Lorenzo. Don Simone raises his hand in protest. It's nothing like that. Gabriella wipes her hands on her apron and moves closer to her father. There is something in Don Simone's voice that is causing the flesh in her arms to rise. A landowner from the north is investing in properties all over Italy, the priest tells them. He, he has purchased this property and will be arriving in the summer to view the land and to and to decide whether he wants to keep. Keep what? Her father has leaned forward, his jaw rigid. A vein is pulsing in his temple. Don Simone bites his lip. Keep things the way they are. Keep the lands cultivated. Gabriella blurts. Why else would he want the lands if not for the crops they yield? And how can someone buy lands that belong to the church? She stiffens with a new thought. Don Simone, will you still have the church? Oh, filia mia, for now it seems that I will be able to stay on as the parish priest. But if this new landowner decides not to cultivate the lands, then, then, then we will have to find another means of employment, Gabriella's father says, each word dropping like a heavy stone. Gabriella sinks into the chair next to him. There's no work for them in Camini. Her family has been truly fortunate working for Don Simone all these years, and a few other families have been blessed with the means to help others occasionally, like Tonino's father. Tonino. Suddenly, Gabriella realizes that both men are looking at her. Did I just utter Tonino's name aloud, she wonders. She feels her cheeks burning. Her father's eyes narrow. Gabriella, did you hear what Don Simone has been saying? We may have no choice but to leave Camini. I can't we convince him to keep things as they are? Gabriella hears the panic in her voice. I don't want to leave Camini. Dear God, how can she tell them about Tonino now? Gabriella's father looks away. His jaw is clenched, and now his fingers are drumming the table. Come, Don Simone says, let us leave it in the hands of God. Perhaps we are worrying for nothing and the Signor Fantine will keep things as they are. Uh, the way things, the way his words tremble at the end makes Gabriella wonder later if he really believes that nothing will change. Lying in her own cot, she stares at the shadows cast on the wall by the moon. There has to be a way to get this Signor Fantine to leave well enough alone. She cannot leave Tonino now or ever. She can't imagine a life without him, a life they have yet to begin together. She reaches for the rosary Don Simone gave her from a pilgrimage to Montestella. Her fingers fumble for the crucifix. She crosses herself and begins to pray. Ave Maria, piena di Grazia.
0: Beautiful, thank you very much for sharing that with us. That was beautiful.
1: Very beautiful. And now I'm invested in finding out.
7: <laughs> in find what happens next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot that happens. Actually, there's quite a lot that happens. So, thanks nice. for uh, that uh, the opportunity to read and share about this book. Thank you so much for telling us about your
0: inspiration and reading from the book. We're wondering, do you have any advice that you can give to budding authors out there? You're a teacher, you have taught people how to write and get themselves out there. So what can you share with our listeners?
7: My advice uh, would be to do everything possible to learn the craft, to read, to read books about writing, to read uh, excellent books, to get yourself into a writer's group, uh, to look at other avenues, workshops, um, mentorships, and and, and write. (laughs) Do a lot of writing. And don't be afraid of constructive criticism. Ask others to listen to you, to read your work, and really listen to what they're saying. and, And continue to believe in yourself. My husband always said, if you don't believe in yourself, who will? And so I've heard that a few times over the years. And and that's really important to have that belief in yourself and also to look at others to help you.
1: Thanks, Rosanna.
7: Yeah, it's wonderful
1: advice. Thank you. Yeah, it, it can definitely be challenging to listen to criticism, but it's, it's always good for writing growth, right?
7: Yeah. That's right. Always be open.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today and for that wonderful reading.
0: It was so nice to have you. Thank
7: you. Thank you so much again.
1: Wow, Brandy, those were amazing readings.
0: Weren't they? Our guest readings are my favorite part of the show. I mean, really, I love our whole show, but I just love when we can have CAA members come on, read from their work, share some information about their process and their inspiration. And I loved all the readings, of course. I have to say, though, I love hearing somebody read from an actual play with the different voices and everything like that, that Andrea did, that's, that's a kind of a fun new thing for the show. So.
1: Yeah, that, that was amazing. And really like drew you in and uh, you could really feel each character, but, uh, and then like Mark and being sitting around the campfire and the spookiness and then mm-hmm. RA's climate change thriller.
0: Just such a relevant thing to be discussing right now. So I'm really glad he came on and, and shared some of that with us. And Rosanna, I've been hearing about her book for ages now, so I'm glad we finally got to have her on the show to read from Lubbrick and Tessa.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So, Brandy, before we wrap up part one of our double feature special, we have some news about the member book catalog on the Canadian Authors Association national website. You may already know that any CAA member with a published book can now subscribe to this optional user-fee-based service, and anyone can access the catalog to buy your book. But did you know that if you subscribe before May 31st, you'll have your book cover featured in CAA's Centennial Celebration Puzzle?
0: That's right, Chris. The original deadline of April 30th has been extended to May 31st. So you all still have time for your book cover to make it into the puzzle. The Centennial Puzzle will showcase the first 100 book covers submitted by our members since 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of Canadian Authors Association. And we want to celebrate our members in as many ways as possible. If you're already a member, you just subscribe to our member book catalog before May 31st with the admin fee of $25. If your book's already featured in the catalog, there's nothing else for you to do. And if you're not a member yet, thank you for listening to our show, first off, but also please consider joining Canadian Author Association now at our special $100 anniversary rate. You'll be eligible for inclusion in the puzzle as well as our other celebratory events. Also, CAA gets $15 for every puzzle sold. So you get Canada-wide promotion for your book Plus, easy fundraising for the association. Truly a win win partnership.
1: Sounds amazing. And I love puzzles.
0: <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, our book listings continue to grow. So, check in regularly at CanadianAuthors.org, national, member, book, catalog, and support a Canadian author you love today. Now, we are done for the week. But not for the month. Come back next week for the conclusion of our double feature episode to hear members Michael Newman, Guglielmo Dizia, Gordon K. Jones, and Genevieve Churnenke. Plus more guest cameos from previous Words with Writers guests.
0: And that's not all. Remember how Chris and I have been teasing about an upcoming contest in celebration of reaching 1,000 podcast downloads? Well, the time has finally come. So make sure you come back next week on Saturday, May 29th, for all the contest details and to find out which award-winning author will be featured in Canadian Author Toronto's Big June event. Okay, talk to you again soon.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: Bye, everyone. We'll